online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Uruguay. If you don't know its wines, then you need to be acquainted. Maritime conditions, distinctive grape varieties, famous for its family wineries. There's so much to discover. Amanda Barnes, author of The South America Wine Guide, is our guide to the wines of Uruguay. Nestled between Brazil and Argentina on the Atlantic coast, Uruguay may be South America's second smallest country, but it punches well above its weight with some notable claims to fame, including the highest literacy rate in Latin America, a laptop given to every child, might those two things be connected, and the world's longest national anthem. Although still something of a well-kept secret outside the country, Uruguay also scores highly for its wines, the maritime climate posing a challenge, but producing some really distinctive fresh styles, most notably from the grape varieties Tanat and Albarino though as we're no doubt about to find out for a host of other grape varieties as well. Amanda Barnes is a big fan, a regular visitor to Uruguay. She's the author of the South America Wine Guide, and she joins us now. Amanda, welcome back to The Drinking Hour. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's great to have you back. And uh, we talked the first time uh, we spoke about uh, about the book and about a vast subject, you know, sort of South America more generally in wine terms. So it's nice to be able to drill down into a specific place, although we are, of course, talking about a, an entire country even now. But Uruguay, it's fair to say there'll be lots of people listening who may not have tried its wines and may not have been there either. I have, but only briefly, and I I loved it. It's one of South America's most advanced countries in many ways, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of call Uruguay the Switzerland of South America (laughs) in many ways. It is, you know, it's a very stable country economically. Politically, I think it's, you know, very stable as well. There's lots of interesting little facts about Uruguay. Like uh, one that I love is that in 2009, they started giving every child their own laptop. Um, and they continue to do that today. You know, it's, it's very advanced in terms of education, culture, and, and you know, has this really high literacy rate. It, it really is. Um, Switzerland of South America is a very good kind of comparison for Uruguay. Yeah, you feel that when you're there as well. There's, mm. I mean, I love some of that chaos you get in some of the other countries uh, in, in South America, but it's um, it does just feel a, a lot more kind of ordered, doesn't it, as well? It is, yeah. And I think sometimes people say that Montevideo is like the quietest capital city in the world because it, you know, it does just feel so peaceful and sleepy. And even though there's a great nightlife and, you know, it's also kind of the birthplace of tango as well. So you have this very rich um, dance and, and, and uh, you know, theatre culture there. It is still so peaceful and so kind of slow moving and And that's what makes it a real joy to visit from the chaos of its neighbours, Argentina and Brazil, 
where you do have this much kind of faster pace of life. So yeah, it's a real, you know, it's a lovely gem. It's one of my favorite countries to to go visit and, and really unwind in. Yeah, we were very taken with it and just wished we'd spent longer there. We ate and drank really well as well. Tell us why we should be excited about Uruguay's wines. Oh my gosh, how long have we got? (laughs) There are so many many reasons, but I think the main kind of upshot that I find interesting is that you really have to think of Uruguay as quite different, you know, compared to Chile and Argentina, which obviously we're all very, you know, most wine drinkers are quite familiar with the wines of Chile and Argentina, because Uruguay has a totally different climate. So really, we're on this Atlantic maritime climate quite high rainfall, you know, like normally over a thousand millimetres a year and quite mild temperatures. So it's it's much more similar to the climates of Bordeaux or Galicia. It doesn't have any of that kind of arid high altitude or, you know, intense uh, sunlight that you get in most of the wine regions of Argentina and Chile as well. Uh, so you really have to kind of change change gear when you start thinking about Uruguay and, and, and expect higher acidities, lower alcohol. And also, you know, there's great diversity beyond the climate, which which gives all the different nuances to the wines. Um, so climate is quite, you know, pretty similar throughout Uruguay. You've got some inland wine regions, but the large majority are coastal. And then, but what you do have that makes a big difference are two other important aspects. The soils, we've got over 99 classified soil types in Uruguay. So even though it's a relatively small country, um, it has this diversity of, of, you know, very old soils, which can show great differences in the wines from like Terra Rosa in Rivera to the kind of gravels and calcareous soils in Colonia to you know, really serious granite in Maldonado. So very diverse soils, big impact on the wines. And then the families of Uruguay, which I think are the most important. You know, you've got like about 150 wine families and they all have their own heritage and style. And the wineries of Uruguay are relatively very small. So they really do reflect the family taste. And and they'll actually quite charmingly just call it their family recipe, which I think sometimes... As wine snobs, we we hate the idea of a recipe. You know, it has to be, you know, just intuition. But it is intuition. But it it's, you know, in Uruguay, it's heritage that's passed down. And, and they make wines in the style that their parents did and their grandparents did. And they make wines in the style that they like to drink. And I think that gives us a very, you know, great diverse range as well. Yeah, and you really notice that in Italy. And of course, a lot of these families will be immigrants from Italy, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a really strong Italian heritage. There's also quite a strong Spanish heritage. And then, you know, you had lots of different immigrants uh, coming into Uruguay around the 1800s. This is when South America saw huge European immigration, and notably from Italy and Spain. But also, you know, you get some uh, German uh, traditions, Swiss, uh, you know, Portuguese. You, you get a whole range of people that were coming in, you know, from from Europe to make a new life in the Americas. Uh, and a lot of those, you know, traditions, they 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 keep from home. So, you know, we, we get interesting kind of Italian varieties like um, Barbera and Arne, you know, Sangiovese, which are grown. And then we've got Spanish heritage varieties like Alvarino, uh, you know, we've got Italian with Terroligo. Like we've got a huge range, which 
have been brought from you know from their families or or are made kind of in ode to their to their heritage and ancestry from Europe. What uh, sort of difference do you think that rich tradition of family ownership makes to a a wine culture uh, like that that you find in Uruguay? I think when it's family businesses, and we're largely talking about quite small family businesses as well. I think, you know, obviously they are, they need to be, you know, economically viable. But I think when it is a family business, there's a real passion for what you do. And you're making the wines that you're proud of. um, And it's very personal. And so I think we can really talk about how personal and intimate the wines of Uruguay are. And obviously they change with generations and as, you know, as the winemaker explores and learns and tastes, you know, there's that natural evolution. But I think there's always, a you know, a real family style and touch to, to each of the, the wineries and producers. And I think that's quite unique. When you have larger, you know, more corporate productions that we get in many places of the new world, you have a tendency to follow market trends and, and you know, other styles and it, you could be a bit more influenced because it is a, bu- a business at the end of the day and there's no kind of, you know, for better or worse, uh, family kind of pride and emotion tied into it. Um, so you definitely in Uruguay get a lot of that um, emotional connection to the wines, which I think make them, you know, very interesting. It also means that there are wines for every type of consumer. You know, there are certain wines that will appeal much more to certain tastes and others that that won't because they are much more personalized if you like sort of idiosyncratic wine yeah exactly it's a good word for it and uh, what sort of production volumes are we talking about here I'm assuming um, small yeah so I mean the other thing that changes a lot in Uruguay are the vintages so you'd normally go somewhere between half a million litres to a million litres in total for the the whole year um, so, you know, we, we're, we're looking at small productions. Um, there's just less than 6,000 hectares of vines. Um, and yeah, so small productions and, and you can have vineyard uh, wineries who have a hectare or two. And then, you know, some of the biggest might have two or 300 hectares, but, but not much more. And are we finding uh, kind of things like uh, the Criolla wines that you get next door in Argentina, for example? We aren't. So I'm a huge fan of Criollo. I think we talked about it in our last... We did, uh, yeah. And I've tasted them since and and I can see why you are so excited. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of the Criollo varieties. But so there are some older plants that have been found in like gardens in Uruguay. But but really that heritage um, got ripped out, literally. I mean, you know, Uruguay went, just like Brazil, went through this huge transition into hybrid varieties. So... Um, we had a big switch into more hardy, resistant hybrids because you've got this humidity. And I think in early kind of viticulture, you know, in the last previous century, it was quite challenging to to make Vitis vinifera varieties. And so that's why hybrids were such a kind of easy bet. That doesn't mean that we lost the other kind of vinifera varieties. You know, Tanat has been planted since the 1800s and has never been you know, there are plenty of old vines that were never ripped out. But things like Criolla, they were naturally replaced by hybrids, which were just as productive, um, but a lot hardier to the to the wetter weather. So we don't have any native varieties in Uruguay. Uh, and it is affected by, you know, it was affected by phylloxera and lots of other things too. So 
it, it is a kind of newer old vine story in, in Uruguay. I think the oldest vines are about 40 years old. Okay. And do we see uh, many of those hybrids now? Because certainly the wines I've tasted have tended not to be from hybrid varieties. No, yeah, they've largely been ripped out. Um, so in the 1990s, there was a big transition to um, high quality. Uh, so, they, you know, there was a government incentive to get rid of the hybrids and start planting vinifera um, to really, you know, incentivize the industry to make high quality wine. So that's where we saw the major shift. Um, we still have some, you know, some varieties, like one of the most planted is Moscato de Ombergo, um, and we've got quite a lot of Ugni Blanc, both of which there are some producers who are making really fun, fresh uh, wines from them. But but both of those varieties are typically used in kind of more bulk wines and, and even for like their vermouth and their sweet wines, which, you know, Uruguay has its own strong tradition of making their you know every kind of wine drink uh, and spirit as well so you do have higher quality grape varieties like you know Tanat, Albariño and then some kind of more medium quality lower quality like the Moscato, the Ugni which you can make lovely wines but they're typically used for more kind of bulk and, and uh, you know distilled wines and drinks. <laughs> well, let's uh, talk in a moment about some of those more celebrated uh, grape varieties. But first of all, I, I was quite surprised to find that there are vines literally all over the country. It's not concentrated just in, in one area, is it? Yeah. So, it, it, we, you know, you do have vineyards dotted all over the different regions of, of Uruguay. The large majority is concentrated along the coastline. So you've got to think Uruguay mm, kind of looks like... Um, it, I mean, it, it's, it kind of tapers up to the top, but it, it's a, a kind of round country, if you like. And all along the bottom coast to the west, you have the Rio de la Plata, the river plate, uh, which gives the border between Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, and then that coastline, which kind of is more of a river, really like a river, um, river edge, uh, moves into what becomes the Atlantic Ocean. And you kind of say that the river and the ocean meet in Montevideo, which is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and then from Montevideo to the east, that's where you really have um, much more that ocean influence, much stronger kind of, you know, slightly cooler temperatures. Uh, and along that coastline, we have the major wine regions. So the main one is outside of Montevideo, or uh, there are also vineyards still within Montevideo, um, but the main one is Canelones, where the, you know, the wine region is concentrated quite significantly. I mean, more than two thirds of the production is there. And then beyond that, you've got Maldonado, which is the kind of new frontier uh, to the, you know, the granite slopes, the very poor soils in the direction of Brazil, but also some plantings in La Valeja and Rocha as well, which are also very coastal. And then those kind of river regions, uh, you've got San Jose, uh, which is kind of a combination between coast and river and then Colonia uh, and Soriano, which are very historical uh, regions along the riverbeds. Uh, and then we've got the regions that are dotted all inside the interior. Um, so right up to the border of Brazil and the border of Argentina. Those are much smaller in production, but they're really quite fun to explore as well. Those are areas that either are on the river plate or actually on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, is there a, a great deal of of difference in climate terms um, between that river plate and 
and the influence of the Atlantic. Because when you're there, it, it's kind of difficult to know sometimes whether it's a river or whether it's the sea. Yeah. I mean, it looks very similar. Like the, the River Plate, I think it's one of the largest kind of river mouths in the world. It's, it's, it, it, it looks like a sea. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't see land on the other side. And it takes a fair while to cross by boat as well. Um, so, there, I mean, there is a difference, but it's not as marked as you might it might sound um, but there is a difference in general terms uh you know the river gives you a lot more kind of um a buffer to temperature changes so you actually have slight like less diurnal range than you would in the more coastal climate um moving further away so that makes an impact and the fact that you get you know a greater diurnal range on the more oceanic um and then you also get the differences of wind uh, which can be quite important, actually, especially when you have some of the more humid years, um, because that coastal wind is much more prevalent uh, and, you know, is really great in terms of drying the grapes and, and, and also giving a bit more kind of concentration and thicker skins as, as wind does as well. Let's talk about the grape varieties then. And I'm going to leave Tanat uh, and the Reds um, to, to next, because I, I think we should keep on with the uh, oceanic influence and talk about the white varieties and uh, would it be fair to say Albarino is the most celebrated? Yeah it's not the most planted but I do think it is the most celebrated at the moment and deservedly so. It's relatively new actually it was only planted it was planted by the Bowser family in the early 2000s and they have a Galician heritage so this was you know an ode to their Galician ancestors and they brought the um, they imported the the vines actually from Galicia, from some family. Uh, and so they were the first to plant and Bowser really kind of put Albarino on the map and other wineries, um, you know, became very interested. And then I would say the one that really kind of, you know, shot Albarino into the kind of world uh, was Garçon um, because they planted quite a significant um number of hectares uh, under vine with Albarino from Maldonado. So a very different expression to the slightly kind of richer, more aromatic style of Albarino that we get from Bausa in uh, Canelones to the slightly more kind of um, granite-influenced uh, saline, grippier styles uh, that you get from Maldonado with Garçon. And then many other producers have joined as well. So Cerro del Toro is another excellent producer of Albarino, um, but but everyone's you know lots of people are planting Albarino. We've really seen the great potential of Uruguayan Albarino coming through, both in Canelones and in Maldonado. When I taste Albarino from uh, Uruguay, and I haven't tasted that many, but um, I, I certainly at your recent London event improved my knowledge of uh, Albarino from uh, Uruguay. To me, I've tasted Albarino from where it's planted in, in California or in uh, New Zealand, and it's, it's never quite the same as, as, as it is in Galicia. However, would it be fair to say that, that Uruguay is about the closest you'll get to that sort of um, Galician, uh, reaspicious sort of style? Definitely. I really, I really think so. I've been doing uh, you know, a lot of Albarino tasting as well, out of interest, and comparatively as well, to see you know, how the, where the benchmarks are. And I really think Uruguay has a lot of similarities to Galicia in terms of uh, climate. We also have very similar kind of granite soils uh, in, in different areas as well. So you really get that lovely salinity, that very coastal character, 
um, you get a full body, but it's not too aromatic. You know, I think sometimes some of the other new world albariños, if you like, can, can be much more kind of peachy and aromatic, whereas, you know, Uruguay's can be um, quite a bit more austere, actually, which I think is is often what you get in raised baixas too. Yeah. Salty, always coastal, like, you know, just wines for seafood and oh, really yeah. quite delicious for it. <laughs> it's, I always liken those wines to sort of going for a, a walk on a, a windy day by the seaside. It's got Oh, that, absolutely. Yeah, sort of dappled with delicious sort of freshness and, and, and saltiness. Um, mm-hmm. There's some great examples of Alberino, as you say. Um, what else should we be looking out for in terms of whites? I mean, this is where it starts to get very diverse because then you've got everyone playing with their own different, you know, varieties, which are quite interesting. One of the more planted, two of the more planted varieties are Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. Um, and we do get some very nice expressions of that. And there's been you know, recently actually a lot more work in, in, in trying to kind of develop the the styles of, of Sauvignon Blanc specifically because you don't get that kind of bombastic explosion of fruit or grass that you get in both New Zealand and Chile. You get this much more, um, you know, nuanced kind of subtle uh, fruit expression, citrus notes, which I think is a bit more similar to what you get in, you know, in the Loire or France. Um, and so, like, it's it's quite a subtle New World Sauvignon Blanc from Uruguay, but can be really quite delicious as well. And then you've got lots of fun, you know, everyone's doing their own different thing, whether that's with, like, Marsan, like De Luca, who's, you know, a, an absolute Francophile and, you know, has his studied in France to, uh, I don't know, the, the kind of crazy, interesting Triviano blends that Serra Chapeau are doing in both Pet Nat and also still... You know, there's a huge range. Like we could talk about 50 different varieties, but in terms of actual critical mass, it's Al- it's Albarino rising, um, and then Chardonnay and uh, and and Sauvignon Blanc. And we had, courtesy of your tasting recently, an outstanding uh, Riesling. Uh, that that yes. was uh, that was Bowser, wasn't it? Yeah, Riesling I think has a great potential as well. We we don't have too many planted, but. There's some interesting Rieslings coming from Rocha, which is a very, you know, it's on the border of Brazil, but along the coast. Um, and then we have the beautiful Riesling of Bausa from Pan de Azucar, which is a very special vineyard with lots of kind of nice in the soils. And, uh, you know, it's kind of very close to the coast and just a delicious, oily, uh, you know, proper, proper kind of petrol note Riesling, a little bit like I think we compared it a bit kind of like Eden Valley, if you like, if you mm. wanted a, a kind of different comparison. Yeah, absolutely delicious and well worth um, seeking out. Um, as uh, is some of the uh, Tanat being produced. And this is the grape of Uruguay, Tanat, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. So Tanat accounts um, for, I think, over two thirds um, of the production. Maybe not quite that much. I need to look. No, it's about a third, I think. Uh, but it is It is absolutely the champion variety. And it really kind of took root uh, when it was first planted in the in the 1800s and has never slowed down. You know, it's Tanat is a variety that has very thick skins. Um, and those thick skins are great in terms of being planted in a more humid uh, region because it's naturally uh, much more uh, hardy and, and resistant to humidity. But also, I think, you know, a lot of the winemakers of Uruguay have really found that Tanat 
does quite well in humidity, it actually likes humidity. So the years in which uh, you have drought years in Uruguay, that's the real struggle. It's actually in the kind of cooler years where Tanat really thrives. And you get so many different expressions of Tanat. Uh, so I think they've really kind of mastered Tanat. Um, and it's not an easy variety to master because you've got far more tannins than you do in most other red varieties. But but once you've kind of managed to learn how to control that vigor in the vineyard uh, and get that full maturity, you know, that's where we start to see the really fun wines come through. For ranging from those very um, traditional styles where they've been matured a long time in oak and, you know, making wines that are really age worthy and wines to kind of lay down to the, the modern, um, you know, the, the newer kind of tendency towards unoaked, naked tanat, if you like, which I think can be really quite delicious, served slightly chilled and, you know, really quite energetic, fun wines with lovely, lively acidity, which tanat always has, and those slightly kind of peppery tannins, you know, managed through lighter macerations. We even have sparkling tanat, so Pisano does an excellent... Uh, red sparkling tanat. Um, we've got a lot of sweet tanats as well. And then we've got Proyecto Nacal making like lovely juicy tanat aged in amphora. You know, there's a huge, there's a world of tanat within Uruguay. <laughs> yes. And uh, we, we tasted just a, a little of that world, but uh, a standout wine for me uh, was the uh, cemento, um, a, a key to uh, uh, the way it's, um, or the character it it, it has yeah, in, in the name, uh-huh. yeah, really lovely wine, and and that is that's a an exemplar, isn't it, of that uh, stylistic uh, change that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So Vigna Eden, who make the delicious Cemento Tanat, yeah, they're definitely one of the kind of forerunners in this unoaked uh, Tanat trend. But we, you know, we also have like Pablo Felabrino is another winemaker who's really focused on that, and all the young guys, all the kind of new generation have their own versions of unoaked tanat as well. We've got a really nice, fun coastal tanat, which is from uh, Juanico, which is really juicy and vibrant. There's, you know, there's a lot to kind of hunt down. I think in my in my book, actually, I, I try to kind of separate the styles of tanat as well, because, you know, you can say tanat and actually you have a very different wine experience. You really have to put them into schools, different tanat schools. Yes, I mean, the one that we're talking about then Eden, to me, uh, sort of reminded me, and this might sound mad, but of a Beaujolais Cru wine rather yeah. than anything hefty or muscular. Yeah, I'd say, you know, I would say that I think everyone's always surprised, actually, when they taste some of this kind of modern school of Tanat wines at just how juicy and vibrant it can be. And, you know, it's not a tiring wine by any means. It is a wine that, you know, as I said, you want to just serve it slightly chilled. It can even work with fish. You know, it, it's got some tannins and it's got acidity, but, you know, it's it, it's just a real pleasure, quite easy drinking. What is there to be excited about in red terms beyond Tanat? Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the potential of uh, Cabernet Franc that we've got coming through. Um, so there's a lot of Bordeaux varieties planted in, in Uruguay, again, for that kind of similarity of climate. But I think the one that's really kind of rising to the fore is the Cabernet Franc. Um, some lovely kind of leafier styles. Uh, and, and that could be really quite delicious. Marseille Lan is also a real kind of rising star in, in Uruguay. Like it, it's just adapted very nicely, um, works really well in the climate. We've got some beautiful uh, fruit-driven examples. And then you've got all your really fun, you know, Italian and Spanish, uh, Spanish heritage varieties that 
I really enjoy trying as well, whether it's from like the Nebbiolo to, you know, uh, Tempranillo. There's always, you you don't get bored kind of trying out all the different varieties being made. Oh, no. Or if you do get bored, then you need to go and do something else, really. (laughs) (laughs) There are some fantastic wines uh, and a real voyage of of, of discovery. Um, Do you kind of... um, encounter many people even in the wine world who know much about Uruguay because to to me it it still feels really quite niche. It is still very niche and I think you know Uruguay is exporting a fair amount of their production but they're they're a small wine country so they're always going to be you know niche in that sense they will never have the same recognition that you know the larger producers um, in South America or the new world will but I think that's kind of part of the charm as well because once you you know once you learn about Uruguay you're definitely become you're the most knowledge you know you're within the one percent of the world that <laughs> that know about their that know about their the quality of their wines so it's quite easy to kind of dive into Uruguay and, and find your favorites within a very you know, relatively short time. There's not too much information out there either. I mean, you know, I think some of the wine magazines have certainly started kind of paying a lot more attention recently. But but I certainly found that when I was, you know, researching and writing, you know, it, there was a lot of research to be done. Um, but Uruguay is just a pleasure to to kind of read about and learn about and, and write about and discover. So I'm sure that we'll get a lot more interest in Uruguay in the coming years. Um, especially as, you know, more of the wines kind of make their way out there to the market. Yeah, they do feel like a a discovery and wine lovers just love a discovery, don't they? Absolutely. And, And I think you can, you know, the prices are always very reasonable. You can really, you could take a holiday to Uruguay for, for two weeks and you could quite convincingly visit all of the wine regions. And even within a week, you could, you know, really get to good grips with Uruguay, whereas you'd never have that opportunity. You wouldn't be able to do that in the bigger bigger wine countries by any means. Yeah, good idea. I would <laughs> uh, yeah, heartily recommend. I'll, I'll certainly be back there. Um, t- talk us through the, the, the gastronomy, because I think you gave us a figure that cows outnumber people three mm. to one, which gives you a, a clue to what they eat. Absolutely, yeah. So there's, you know, 12 million cows and, and less than 4 million uh, people in Uruguay <laughs> so there's a you know a lot the beef is very uh, heavy on the menu and the diet of Uruguay in fact I think I think Argentina might have just overtaken Uruguay again this last year but Uruguay and Argentina are always vying for the the largest consumption of beef per capita um, and so it really is you know a massive kind of meat culture and I would say that the, the beef is just as good, if not better, than the beef in Argentina. Um, it is delicious. Like, you know, if, if you love your steak, Uruguay is a great place to go. So the asado culture, the big barbecue culture is, you know, reigns supreme. And, and every family will have a barbecue and asado at least once a week, um, if not three, four or five times a week. Uh, and, and within that, you get all kinds of, you know, what I love about um, Uruguay and South America in general, actually, Everyone uses every single part of the animal, so nothing goes to waste. So when you are at a barbecue, you will have, you know, the sweet meats, you will have the, you know, the the different kind of innards there, you will have every kind of cut of beef uh, cooked in a different way. And, and, you know, everyone has their own kind of recipe or sauce, which will go with the different styles. But 
you you really do it's a very strong meat culture and then there's also cordero there's also lamb as well which um there's a lot of sheep in uruguay too uh so we get some really nice delicious lamb which works beautifully with tanat uh as well and then we've also got this beautiful coastline so you get excellent fish and sea and seafood i really recommend you know you need two culinary experiences in uruguay one slightly inland having a proper barbecue drinking your tanat and then the other kind of on the beach at the beautiful beach bars that there are, uh, you know, having fresh seafood and uh, drinking albarino. And um, but then for the vegetarians, there's lots as well. I mean, you know, it is a it's a really nice country for producing delicious kind of local vegetables. And and they're, they're normally made in quite a simple way. It's quite Spanish in that sense. I'd say, you know, it touches on both the Spanish and Italian heritage in terms of their preparation of food. If you have tomatoes of the season they are very just lightly dressed really kind of letting the the produce uh, stand out on its own and that kind of simplicity and sophistication I think is very much part of kind of Uruguay's identity as a whole as well as through its gastronomy. Yeah you're making me hungry now but simplicity <laughs> and sophistication when combined are just mm. a, um, a, a winner. Um, I, I was struck that there's some good funky stuff based on the, the pet gnats that you were showing us oh yeah there's and the orange wines of course as well yeah no there's definitely some kind of fun more funky things coming through i mean you, you've got the the new generation that are kind of coming to the fore at the moment as well and a lot of them have been traveling around a lot more than their parents did and and really kind of getting into experimentation so you'll often have within one family you'll have the father's wines or, you know, the uncles or aunts, whomever's the winemaker. And then you'll have the the new generation making their kind of more experimental line as well. So there's some lovely pet gnats. And again, you've got these great varieties that naturally, and a climate that naturally gives you quite low alcohol and quite good acidity. So it makes sense to make, you know, lovely sparkling wines from Uruguay, um, as well as some fun kind of orange wines. We've got this Another style of kind of deep rosé, which is kind of clarete. Fabiana Bracovosca, that's one of my favourite um, claretes. Uh, you've got lovely orange wines from, you know, Pablo Felobrino, I think is the one that we had at dinner. Uh, but also Nacal is another one with lovely orange. Like, you know, there's a big mix of, of things happening. Mm, it's an exciting place, I think, uh, in winemaking terms. A, a word for the um, vermouth too. Oh yeah, vermouth. So I really think um, vermouth is something that the, the culture never really died in Uruguay. Um, and during the pandemic, everyone started drinking a lot more vermouth in Uruguay in the same way that they did elsewhere. Um, and there's one producer I really, really love, which is actually it's Marichal, who is the Juan Andres Marichal, who has his family winery. But he started using his Tanat and Albariño. Uh, to make vermouth with a couple friends during the pandemic and, and launched his Vermouth Flores brand um, on the base, the red and the pink uh, based in Tanat, and then the, the white uh, based with Albarino. And the red makes a wicked Negroni, <laughs> which mm. I believe you tried. Yeah, and then the, the rosé and the, and the white are just lovely, fresh, serve it with some soda and ice. Um, perfect summertime tipples. Yeah, the the uh, kind of wine 
culture is really very sophisticated, isn't it? It's difficult not to sound patronising in saying that, but I think just because we know, you know lots about Uruguay, but we more generally don't know a huge amount about Uruguay, um, it comes as a, as a really striking surprise, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, there, there is this wine culture. I mean, Uruguay, you know, have always consumed a fair amount of wine and there, there just is this drinking culture in a very pleasant way I mean no one gets I don't I've never seen anyone drunk in Uruguay (laughs) that's the you know it's not it is sophisticated in that sense um but it's you know there's just this very kind of laid back you know in the afternoon you have your hour of vermouth and maybe maybe you have some beer and then you start you know drinking your wine and then it depends what you're eating whether you're going with white or red but it just is part of the culture it's just part of daily life and you know days are quite laid back as well like people do have a siesta in certain parts so you might be having wine at lunch as well it very much depends on you know where you are in your working life or career I'd say but yeah it's just a very laid back lovely wine culture. Yeah uh, you're definitely um, selling it the government there has clearly done a lot to uh, promote and support uh, wine and I noticed that they boast of a a four-year uh, geo-referencing project, uh, the first country in Latin America, one of the few in the world to have geo-referenced all of its wine establishments and vineyards. Um, what does that mean in reality? Oh, so you can go to the Inavi website, I-N-A-V-I, and you can literally look at the map, click on the, you know, click on all the different vineyards which are marked on the map, uh, zone into, you know, a a plot it might be a small plot of you know a tenth of a hectare or it could be a larger hectare plot it will tell you exactly what's planted there you know variety rootstock clone year of plantation uh, i think it tells you the density as well you know it's just got an extraordinary amount of information just it really is in line with uruguay's kind of sense of openness traceability uh, and also this kind of focus on sustainability and and, and clear information for, for everyone, for the consumer as well. They do the same, in, interestingly enough, you have the, that same level of information when you buy beef, a packet of, you know, some meat. So you can also figure out exactly which kind of breed it came from, cow, place, location, origin. Um, that, you know, they do it across many of their different production sectors. And yeah, I think they launched the Vineyard Database um, two years ago. Um, but it's a great tool. It's fantastic. Yes, sounds very impressive. I shall take a look at that. And once we've done that, and once we're excited about these wines, uh, where's best to actually find these wines in, in the UK market, where the majority of people, by no means all of them, but the majority of people listening to this podcast will be? Yeah, well, so, I mean, you have to go normally go to the kind of independent merchants, I'd say, you because of that kind of niche positioning that Uruguay has. Some of the supermarkets might have some uh, some wines. I know that um, you know they've certainly been working with producers for many years. Uh, the importers, you know, some of our key importers is Condor, uh, Vinos Latinos, which also has their own wine website called Wines of Uruguay, where you can purchase direct. Uh, Jeroboam's, you know. And the easiest thing is probably figure out 
who you want to try or what you want to try and just pop it into wine searcher or google and see where it comes up because it's mainly in the in the independent merchants that you'll that you'll find a lot of the uruguayan wines and you've given us some uh, producer names dotted throughout so that's really helpful the factors at play here small production a family ownership etc that might ordinarily lead to slightly more expensive wines um how are the prices i i mean they start from anywhere from you know 10 pounds and kind of upwards so it's definitely i don't think uruguay ever does kind of rock bottom you know five pound uh wines um and i'm i hope that they don't ever do that because you know it'd be massively underselling the the amount of effort uh, that it goes into cultivating vineyards in in what is you know not the easiest climate and also you know a labor of love for very small producers but anywhere upwards of 10 pounds I mean like in my you know if anyone's interested in reading just about Uruguay I have the ebook which I think is a fiver so you can pick that up and go through lots of wine recommendations and most of the wines I recommend will normally range between you know, £12 to kind of maximum 35 You know, there's no, there's only a couple wines that, that go above £35. So you're definitely kind of well within, I hopefully, you know, a suitable budget to really explore and buy a case and, and you know, have a nice wine tasting with your friends to, to get to see a lot of the diversity on hand. Yeah, well, good plug there as well. I'd uh, recommend... <laughs> Uh, I recommend doing that. It's a, it's a snip. A final question, which I know is always a bit of a bugger, but we tend to ask for a desert island wine. And if you were looking specifically, we're going to narrow it down here just to Uruguay because that's what we've been talking about. So, if you if there was one wine that you just yeah you're you're trapped on this uh, desert island or an island in the Atlantic somewhere maybe, and you could have a Uruguayan wine, what do you think it would be? More tough. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer based on. The Bowser family, I, I love their wines, and they recently opened this gorgeous restaurant, like on the mountain, kind of the hillside overlooking the sea. And with Eduardo, the winemaker, we had their first vintage of Riesling, which was, um, you know, I think about 10, 12 years old. And that would probably be my desert island wine. I like whites with a bit of age, and I know that the white wines of Uruguay can age beautifully, whether it's Albarino or Riesling. Um, so that that's what I'd take to the desert island and, and just enjoy the sea view and hopefully catch some fresh scallops or something while I'm sat there. <laughs> yeah, why not? That sounds, uh, you're painting a picture that sounds great. Uh, good recommendation based on that producer and tasting that uh, incredible reasoning, which is uh, a real favourite of mine. So it's fascinating to learn a bit more about uh, Uruguay. It's great that you're uh, banging in the drum for it as well and uh, banging the drum for the book and the ebook too. So, <laughs> Well done for that. Amanda, it's always great to chat to you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you so much. Cheers. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. We round off as ever with some IWSC medal winners uh, from uh, South America, and let's head down the coast uh, from Uruguay to Argentina's beautiful Patagonia region. Atronia Brut Nature non vintage, a sparkler, 100% Chardonnay, produced in that uh, emerging area with its cool climate and wind. Uh, this scored a silver medal with 91 points. Uh, the judging panel, overseen by Dercy Viana Jr., Brazil's first master of wine. 
And the judges said this, seductively mouthfilling, displaying elegant notes of bruised apple, green tea and peach, carried by superbly refined mousse. Some autolytic notes of Marmite biscuit bring further complexity, deep and harmonious. Up into the Andes next, Terrasas de los Andes, Grand Cabernet Sauvignon 2020, won a very strong silver, 93 points for this. 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, here's what the panel said. Cassis and blackberry fruity nose with subtle oak and savoury spice. Ripe, sweet cassis concentration on the palate. Tannins are fine-grained with fresh acidity and a long, complex finish. When we think of Malbec, we usually think of Argentina because it's very much made that grape variety its own. But here's a strong silver medal winner from Brazil, from Vinicola Campestre, Zonotto Malbec. 2022 was awarded 92 points. The judging panel said this. An intense raisin and mocha nose is accentuated with violet aromas, while the powerful palate delivers a classically styled blue fruit character, refreshing acidity and a lasting finish. And another grape that you might not immediately associate with Brazil, Marcelin, Jolimont, Carencias, Marcelin 2020 from the Rio Grande do Sul region, which is uh, in the south of Brazil, uh, awarded a silver medal with 90 points. Uh, the judges describe it this way, bursting with lovely dark fruits and well-integrated toasty wood on a concentrated palate, lifted with vibrant acidity and dashed with a wonderfully savoury hint of olive tapenade and black pepper. And finally, here's a medal-winning tipple from Uruguay, a gin this time. Sacramento Spirits Sur 34 gin won a bronze medal. It's from Colonia, that uh, beautiful town that Amanda briefly referenced earlier. I was lucky enough to visit uh, a few years ago. Uh, this was tasted by a panel that included Ivan Dixon, David T. Smith, Will Lowe, M.W., a master distiller himself. Another, Desmond Payne, MBE, a legendary distiller from uh, Beefeater. And uh, Stephen Gould. And here's what they said. A very pleasant orange and citrus nose with cardamom and juniper on the palate. And that's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Amanda Barnes, author of the South America Wine Guide, for sharing her enthusiasm for Uruguay. If you're yet to explore its wines, then hopefully our conversation has inspired you. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and X, the new name for Twitter. Or, of course, you can look for Club Onologique on both those platforms. And you'll also find me if you look for... Mr. Venusaurus. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.